morning we're going to finish uh, by wrapping up our sermon series on the life of David. And uh, we're going to be doing that by focusing in on David's legacy uh, for us as the, the church. Um, so that's kind of the, the direction that we're heading this morning. Now, if I was to ask you kind of right now, um, point blank, what you thought David's legacy for the church was, you might be kind of hard-pressed to give an answer. I know I heard in the first service the Psalms, um, <laughs> which I thought was a good answer. Um, but part of that is because David's crowning achievements um, as, as king of Israel, um, specifically as king, are really just a matter of history. Um, and that's not to say that David's life has no impact on us, but it is to say that his legacy for us is not bound up in his earthly achievements and accomplishments. And we see this pretty quickly as we begin to look at David um, through the course of, of history. Um, so, you know, a lot of historians will kind of recognize um, these three major things that David did. They would say um, that David unified the 12 tribes of Israel, so he brought all the tribes together in the promised land. Um, David brought peace to the, the nation um, from all of the surrounding enemies. And David brought the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem, um, which is uh, the, the capital city of, of Israel. Um, but when we kind of track these things throughout history, we see um, that ultimately those things were not permanent, right? Um, we see that the tribes are scattered, that the peace was disturbed, and that the ark of God was lost. Um, although I, I do think that every time I turn on the History Channel, uh, someone is in search of, of the ark, uh, kind of in the same vein as Indiana Jones, which I feel like would be a pretty uh, cool job. But um, <laughs> I mean, it's a job that always pays because someone's never going to find it, right? So <laughs> um, anyways, um, so all, all of David's crowning achievements um, as great as they were, they kind of lacked this sense of, of permanence. Everything that David did as, as a king came and, and went. Um, so when we speak of David's legacy this morning, we are not speaking of what David did for God, but instead we are um, speaking about something that God decided to promise to his king, David. Um, and, and that promise is where we're going to camp out this morning. So if you have your Bibles, um, feel free to pull them out. If you have your smartphones, uh, feel free to take those out too. And, and we're going to go through 2 uh, Samuel. And if you don't, um, the, the text will be on the screen here, um, so you can follow along there. Um, and just kind of as a side note, as you're flipping through um, to 2 Samuel 7, um, when you are working through uh, other parts of the Bible or you're working through a theology book, or something, um, this section of scripture is referred to as the Davidic covenant. Um, I said that earlier to a friend, and he heard Davidic, like divisive, or uh, something like that, but it's Davidic as in David. Um, so if you hear me say Davidic covenant later, this is what I'm referring to, 2 Samuel 7. So, all right, verse 1. Now, when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan, the prophet, see now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, go and tell my servant David, 
Thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? Verse 11, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish his throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. All right, so let, we're just going to jump right into it. Um, we'll pick up with verse 1. Um, verse 1. Now, when the king lived in his house, believe it or not, this is actually one of the most loaded phrases in the book of Samuel. And here's why. Because through the book of Samuel, um, over and over again, there has been one question, and really only one question uh, that's been asked, and that is, who is the true king of Israel. What is he like? What does he do? Uh, what does he say? How should he treat the people? How should he relate to God? That's what the book of Samuel is seeking to answer. Now, back in, in Deuteronomy 17, um, which is you know part of, of the Torah, the first five books of the, the law, the Lord already spelled this out for Israel. He already kind of laid the, the groundwork. Um, so the Lord says, when you come to the land that the Lord, your God, is giving you. Um, you know, at this time, Israel is in the wilderness, and they, they haven't quite entered the land yet. Um, so he's saying, when you come to that land, when you come into the promised land, um, and you possess it, and you dwell in it, um, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. The Lord says, you may indeed set a king over you, whom the Lord your God will choose, right? So the Lord says, you can have a king, Israel, when the time comes. I'm going to give you that ability, but it must be the sort of king that I desire. It must be the sort of king that I choose. And then the Lord goes on through Deuteronomy, and he describes what the true king of Israel looks like. So he says, the true king of Israel is like this. Well, he must have a copy of the law, which, again, is kind of the first five books of the Bible. He must be perfectly obedient to that law. He must not exploit the people, uh, which is a, a huge one. And he's forbidden to collect the three uh, Ws. Um, you know, at the time, uh, all of the, the kings in the ancient Near East, uh, they collected these three things to prove uh, their power and their glory. And they're War, uh, war horses, um, you can say maybe weapons if you want to modernize it, uh, women, and wealth, right? And these were kind of the three things that proved the status of the king. And if the king was obedient to all these things, if he kind of abstained from the three W's, he served the people, he kept the law, then the Lord says in Deuteronomy 17 that he 
will extend the kingdom. He will establish the, ki- the kingdom of the king. Now, in the book of Samuel, Samuel where we have been um, through our series, we finally see um, the people in the land. Um, we finally see them established and, and rooted in the land. And um, the people ask for a king. Um, in, in fact, they demand that a king rule over Israel. And, and here's the problem. Um, you know, the Lord said that Israel could have a king, but this is the problem. They don't just want a king. They don't just want an institution. Um, it's not just kingship that they're after. They want, a type, they want the type of king that represents the priorities of the nations around them, right? So they, they want a king that serves the best interests of the nations um, and not a king that serves the best interests of, of God himself. So Samuel, um, who's really kind of a prophet and a judge, he steps in and he warns Israel against this sort of king. Um, and, and he warns against the king that would not serve God um, with his power. And so he says, verse 11, uh, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. So he's saying, the king that you really want, the king that you're going to choose, is going to take your sons, and he's going to send them into battle for his purposes. He's going to send your sons away. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. So he's going to take your, your possessions and use them for his ends. So you kind of see this theme already of exploitation. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. Right? The king was supposed to serve the people, but the king is becoming an enslaver of the people. The Lord says, in that day you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. So already kind of early in the scriptures, we see these two uh, types of kings put forward. We see the king who would worship God and honor God and serve the people. And then on the other hand, we see the other king that um, would exploit the people, right, and and be disobedient to God, would not heed uh, the word of the Lord or or his law. And despite this warning that Samuel gives, the the people really fail to, to take heed Uh, And they continue to demand over and over again that they would have a king over Israel. So finally God says, all right, Israel, you want a king? I will give you a king. I will give you a king that you want. And and God uh, appoints Saul, and and he anoints him, and he sets him as the first king over uh, Israel. And and here's the thing. Um, Saul is not... Uh, God's choice. Saul is the people's choice. Um, Saul is kind of dark, tall, and handsome. He's exactly what the people want. He's diplomatic. Um, He's good with the people. But he's also downright disobedient. He he has no concern for God. And as you read through Samuel, you see over and over again that Saul disobeys God's uh, demands of, of the king. And so finally, it kind of comes to a head, um, and God pulls the plug on Saul's kingship. And when he does, he says something really important for us to understand the Davidic covenant. He says, you have done foolishly, Saul. 
You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. So you have, you have not obeyed. Um, if you had, the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. So we kind of see this principle again. and We saw it in Deuteronomy 17, and, and we see it here. And that is, if the king is perfectly obedient, then God will establish his kingdom. He will give the king an eternal kingdom um, that cannot be shaken. Well, um, long story short, uh, Saul, again, is, is not obedient, um, and, and he breaks this promise. Um, but it's important, again, to really kind of give us an, an understanding uh, of what's going on. Um, so if the king is perfectly obedient, he will earn an eternal kingdom. So we're going to get back to the text. I know we've commented a lot, a lot on verse 1, but we're going to keep moving through it, and we're going to pick up the pace a little bit. So uh, let's get back to verse 1. Now, when the king lived in the house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies. So finally, there's, you know, there's been the search for the, the king um, for chapters and chapters and chapters, and finally we find David on the throne. And, and he's not the choice of the people like Saul is. David is the choice of God. You know, God appoints him. God anoints him. God sets him on the throne and has him rule over the people. And David is described as a man after God's own heart. So he reflects the sort of, ga- the sort of king that God would have on the throne. Um, so David is on his throne. You know, all of his enemies have have been destroyed. Uh, God has been faithful to, to bring peace to Israel. And David says to the prophet Nathan, verse 2, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. So David has only been on the throne for two chapters. And already he, he senses that there's you know, kind of this, this problem with his kingdom. He, he senses that there is something missing, and that is that his kingdom is not permanent, right? There's this spiritual fullness that he longs for his kingdom to have. He, he, uh, he longs for, you know, this eternal kingdom that has a spiritual fullness in the presence of God at the center. Um, so he devises this plan, and he, he says, hey, Nathan, look, I've got this pal- palace built from the cedars of Lebanon, which, you know, at the time where really fancy uh, construction materials. This was the sort of stuff that only kings had on their uh, palaces. So it says, hey, Nathan, I've got this fancy palace. I have an idea. Let's build God a fancy palace. And that way, he won't have to roam around in his tent uh, any longer. He'll be fixed right here in the middle of the capital. And it's really a win-win, because God obviously wants, you know, a palace for himself. And that way we'll have kind of the spiritual fullness right in the middle of the capital. Um, so Nathan says to the king, all right, um, go do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. Verse, verse 3. So Nathan originally agrees. But, verse 4, that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? You can kind of feel the force of that, right? God is saying, David, you think you're going to be the one to build my temple? You know, what, what caused you to think that? 
So the Lord is protesting against uh, that idea, and, and we see that in verses 6 to 11. We didn't read that earlier uh, just for the sake of time, but I'll just kind of recap. So the first reason the Lord says that David is not going to build the temple is that God has never asked for a house. He hasn't asked a king. He hasn't asked a prophet. He hasn't asked um, Samuel. He hasn't asked Moses. We kind of get the sense that if God wanted a temple, he would already have one because he's God. Um, And the second reason that God gives David is that David has forgotten his place as king. And and God really presses this point and and drives it home. He really puts David in his place. And he says, David, I I took you out of the pasture. (laughs) He says, I made you king over my people, right? I am God. You are my king. You know, know your place. Now, if the story stopped here, we would have kind of an uneventful uh, Bible story as far as Bible story goes. We just kind of have David pitching this idea to God and then God shooting it down. But what happens next um, really is one of the most foundational promises in all of Scripture. Um, we see this, this promise, the Davidic covenant, repeated over and over and over again through the Psalms, through the prophets. Um, this this promise really becomes formative for um, Israel and, and their worldview and understanding of who God is and what he is going to do for them. So um, the Lord says, David, you will not make me a house, but, verse 11, the Lord will make you a house, right? And we can already kind of sense the gospel message here. Uh, God is saying, hey, David, it, it's not going to be what you do for me uh, that will Um, allow you to have an eternal legacy. It will be what I do for you. And so as we uh, come here this morning and and we continue to reflect on 2 Samuel 7, this is the legacy uh, for us. This is the legacy for the church, that God would make a house for his king, David. Now, um, you might be kind of asking yourself, well, what does it mean that David uh, is going to have a house built for him? Well, as you read through this section, uh, there's this really cool wordplay going on. So David is saying, hey, God, I'm going to make you a house. And what he means by that is that he's going to make God a temple or a worship center. Um, You know, as I was thinking about this, maybe the closest thing we have here in Escondido is something like Emmanuel Faith, right? So you have this massive church. It's a very big complex. And, uh, you know, these people come to worship the Lord. And, And so David is saying, I'm going to make God a temple, a worship center. And then God steps in and says, David, you're not going to make me a house, but I will make you a house. And immediately we already think, like, well, David has a house, right? He's got that palace (laughs) with the cedars of Lebanon, um, you know, that fancy stuff. Um, But what God is saying is that he's going to make David into a dynasty. From David, there will be a never-ending supply of of kings, and there will be an eternal kingdom. This is what's confirmed for us uh, in in verse 12. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. So we already, you know, see this promise of an eternal kingdom. We already see this promise of an eternal uh, dynasty. But what's the catch? If, if you've kind of been following along with me morning this morning, um, what 
does it require a king? You know, if there's going to be an eternal kingdom, what needs to be done to make that happen? Well, it's the principle that we talked about earlier, right? The king has to be perfectly obedient. He has to be perfectly obedient to God, and he has to serve the people, and only then will he be able to earn the eternal kingdom. And this is really how that the Davidic covenant is interpreted as you look through the scriptures. So Psalm 132 says, The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. And then it gives the content of that oath. It, it says, One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also shall sit on your throne. So we already see kind of this promise for obedience. If you do this, the kingdom will endure. But on the flip side, the Lord says, hey, if the king is disobedient, uh, verse 14, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. On the surface, that kind of sounds counterintuitive. Uh, But what he means here is he means discipline, right? So he says, when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. Right, so this part of the Davidic covenant is really sounding like the law. If you do this, if the king is perfectly obedient, there will be an eternal kingdom. But if the king does not do this, then the kingdom will fail and it will be uh, put to an end. So there's this really conditional element. But there's also this unconditional element in the Davidic covenant. Verse 11, um, the Lord says, But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul. Remember, the Holy Spirit left Saul. But he says, um, your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So we already kind of see this tension, right? We see that um, God promises, you know, definitely that there will be an eternal kingdom. But on the other hand, we see that a king has to come, step up, and earn that kingdom. And we know just already kind of from our track record here in in Samuel that kings don't earn the eternal kingdom, right? And so we're trying to, you know, as we work through Samuel, figure out how is this going to be resolved? How is this tension going to work itself out? And I I think the best way to do that is to continue to follow the kings. So question, who is the king um, that came after David to rule over Israel? Yeah, exactly, Solomon. And, and historically, there was a level of expectation that Solomon would finally be the, the guy who would come and fulfill the promises of God. And you already see it in his name. His name means peace. Right? So he's the king of peace. And he comes, and he's supposed to liberate Israel and give them an eternal kingdom. And there's, you know, good reason for this expectation. Um, the Lord actually says to David, uh, this he says it is solomon your son who shall build my house and my courts for i have chosen him to be my son and i will be his father i will establish his kingdom forever if he continues strong in keeping my commandments and my rules as he is today and i know a lot of you probably know the life of solomon but uh, it's probably pretty easy to predict how this turns out right um well, uh, first it, s- it starts out really well. So Solomon builds a temple. Um, you know, that was part of the promise. 
God says, hey, David, you won't build my temple, but your son, Solomon, will build my temple. So David comes in, and, and he builds um, the temple for the Lord. And then the Lord, in response, gives uh, Solomon one of the most prosperous reigns in Israel's history, right? There's um, money and peace and wealth, um, and all of these nations are flowing in to hear Solomon's wisdom. So, um, Solomon's kingdom experiences blessing. And in fact, most historians refer to this time in Israel as the golden age of Israel. But ultimately, Solomon was not perfectly obedient, and that's, that's kind of the, the punch. Um, so you guys remember those three W's from earlier, uh, war horses or weapons, uh, women, and wealth. Well, Solomon had 40,000 horses, uh, 12,000 horsemen, 700 wives, 300 concubines, and on top of that, he just covered everything in gold just, you know, for fun. <laughs> he covered his throne, he covered his palace, and then just kind of in good measure, he covered the temple for God, too, um, <laughs> just to make God happy. Um, and uh, not only did he kind of fail this three W's test, but on top of that, um, he ended up getting attached to foreign women. And on the surface, that kind of sounds like, well, so what? But when you listen to Deuteronomy 17, there is a warning against foreign women because foreign women will bring idolatry to the nation, right? And the king is supposed to be uh, the preserver of the faith for the people. He's supposed to be the guardian of God's kingdom. And what Solomon ends up doing is he gets caught up in idolatry. And he actually builds altars for false gods. So you can imagine there was this expectation that the king was going to come, that Solomon was the one. You know, he's the king of peace. He's going to establish the kingdom, but he turns around and bows down to an idol, right? So there's this massive um, uproar and, and upset, and, and we see and feel that God's promises are starting to get a little wobbly. Um, but God stays true to his word, um, and he actually disciplines Solomon. Um, so he doesn't establish Solomon's kingdom, and instead, when Solomon dies, he actually turns the kingdom over. And he splits it in two and hands it to two guys uh, named Rehoboam and, and Jeroboam. And these two guys are really kind of the most, uh, or some of the most unfit kings in Israel's history. So Rehoboam is known for exploiting the people. And Jeroboam is, is known um, really for setting up these golden calves. So, you know, in Exodus, the, the sin that crushed Israel was that they set up golden calves. Well, this guy says, hey, that's a good idea. Let's go back to that. Um, so, you know, these two characters really set the tone for the rest of kingship in Israel. And when we go through the book of Kings and we go through the book of Chronicles, we see time and time again that the kings fail uh, to fulfill this. You know, there's some exceptions. There's some kind of highlights there. But there's no one to, to fulfill um, what God is, is calling the king to do. And ultimately what happens is because of the king's disobedience, God um, takes the kingdom and he hands it over to foreign invaders. Um, so Israel asks this question. They start to ask, what happened to the Davidic covenant? Um, you know, we thought there was going to be a king on the throne forever. And, and now, you know, we are being ruled over by other kings. Um, it, it seemed to them as if the promises of God had failed them. 
Have you guys ever been there before where you feel like the promises of God are not lining up with the reality that you are experiencing? Right? Maybe you're struggling to believe the promises of God because, um, you know, the things around you that are happening don't seem to be meshing with what you believe to be true about God. Um, I, I think that's pretty common for all of us. All of us experience that at some point or another. Maybe right now you're, you're feeling completely abandoned and, and alone, even though God's word has told you that, that he will never leave you nor forsake you. And so you're trying to figure out why is God's promise um, not real to me? Why does it not feel real? Or maybe you're feeling uncertain that, that God has really forgiven you, even though his word has already told you that if you repent, he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins. Or maybe you're, you're experiencing darkness in your life. I mean, I, I know that I have experienced this as well. And you're really struggling to kind of pinpoint what's going on. You're trying to interpret every little detail of your life and to make sense of it, even though God says that everything is going to work out together for good. Right? So this is where Israel is at. They've heard the promises of God. Um, they, they know the promises of God, and, and yet it seems as if the promises of God have failed. Now, Psalm 89 really kind of captures uh, their heart in this time. Um, the psalmist says, Lord, you have renounced the covenant with your servant, meaning David, and have defiled his crown in the dust. You have broken through all his walls and reduced his stronghold to ruins. All who pass by have plundered him. He has become the scorn of his neighbors. You have exalted the right hand of his foes. You have made all his enemies rejoice. Indeed, you have turned back the edge of his sword and have not supported him in battle. You have put an end to his splendor and cast his throne to the ground. Right, and that's, that's pretty weighty when you're sitting in that, when it feels like you know, the promises of God have been thrown in the dust and others have trampled on, on them. Um, but thankfully, the, the psalmist doesn't stop there. The psalmist really helps us to understand how we should respond in these sorts of situations. Even though it seems as if God's word has failed, even though it seems as if God's promises ha have not been um, true, uh, the psalmist does not allow his experience to determine his convictions. Right? And a lot of us uh, have this tendency of doing that. Right? We allow our emotions or our feelings or our experiences to, to determine what we believe. What the psalmist does is he turns it on his head. He says um, that he's going to allow the promises of God to determine um, how he interprets his experiences and ultimately how he uh, makes his convictions and aligns his convictions. So it's the promises of God um, that center him. And we see this, right? We see this when we read even just the beginning of Psalm 89. Um, the psalmist says, I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. With my mouth, I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. Right? This is the same psalmist who just said uh, that God has renounced the covenant. You know, in the same breath, he says, I'm going to worship God for his faithfulness. So we see that, that promise determines conviction. And then from that conviction, 
the psalmist calls on the Lord to act. He says, Lord, where is your steadfast love of old, which by your faithfulness you swore to David? Lord, where is your promises? Act on your promises. And this is, this is the model for us, um, living in this broken world where uh, God has not finally come and, and fully established his kingdom. We kind of live in this, this constant tension. So when we find ourselves in, in positions like this, we need to be people of the promise, right? We need to meditate on God's promises and recite them and memorize them and speak them over people and, and text them to people and do whatever we can to make sure that we are meditating on the promises of God because this is really the, the essence of our faith. Our, our faith can never be disconnected from God's promises. So the more that we dwell on them, the more that our faith will be bolstered. Um, so I encourage you guys, you know, just kind of as a, a practical application, um, do as much as you can to be in the word, to memorize the promises and, and to uh, center your life on them. Well, thankfully the story doesn't end here with, with the psalmist. Um, thankfully we get to move beyond him and, and we're not in that period um, you know, of, of um, what seems like complete failure. But hundreds of, of years after the throne had been destroyed and, and hundreds of years after Israel had been sent off and scattered and, and ruled over other kings, God sends an angel. Um, he sends a, a messenger to a woman named Mary. And this angel has the most significant announcement in history, and I, I don't think that it's an overstatement. What this angel says is, um, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. Isn't this amazing? This is an, an amazing fulfillment to God's promises. You know, there's been defeats and captivities and judgments and failures and confusion for centuries and, and centuries. And God finally steps in and he stays true to his promise. Isn't that it's amazing? You know, it had been a thousand years since God had made this covenant. David. Um, you know, just to kind of put that in perspective, that's like four times the history of, of our nation. Um, and, and God stays to, true to his promise, even in the midst of all the failures of all the other kings. So, you know, it's just an, an amazing thing to reflect on, that God has proved himself faithful. Now, with this announcement, there is uh, one caveat. And that was that an everlasting kingdom would not come um, by overthrowing the Roman Empire. You know, a lot of people at the time, is, even as you read scripture and, you know, other historians like Josephus and, and different things, you see that Israel thought, you know, the answer um, to this Davidic covenant problem is that we need a king. And we need a king to come in and we need a king to overthrow Caesar and Rome and what we really need is, is a revolution. But they were wrong, right? Because they were so spiritually blind that they did not see their true captors. What they needed 
was God to come in and overthrow the captors of Israel, the true captors, which was sin, death, and demons. So Christ lives a perfectly obedient life. He comes in, he, he lives out Deuteronomy 17, perfectly obeys God, perfectly serves the people. He shows himself to be the true king, and then there's kind of this wait, right? What happens to Jesus? You know, it kind of seems anticlimactic. God disciplines him with the rod of men, right? He disciplines him with the stripes of men, as if he was a wicked king, right? Christ is numbered as a transgressor. He's numbered as if he was Saul or Jeroboam or Rehoboam or any of the other kings who failed. And here's the most baffling part. Well, Christ is being crucified, and he has his hands outstretched, and he's being held up on this bloody cross. You know, there's a little inscription above his head, and it says, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. And, you know, this was originally supposed to be a taunt, right? This was supposed to be uh, something that was supposed to shame Jesus. And, you know, as I was reflecting on it, it just really blew my mind to think that Jesus' greatest demonstration of sacrifice is also his greatest demonstration of kingship. Right? So he steps in, and he turns kingship on its head, and he lays his down life for the, peop- for the people, and he lays his life down for the kingdom. So at the cross, you know, the promises to everyone seemed like they had failed. They thought the true king uh, that was announced uh, in the scriptures had been put to death, right? You know, so they think, what happened to Caesar? What happened to Rome being overthrown? But what happened was, On the cross, Jesus actually purchased and sealed the promises of God, right? He made them effective. At the cross, Jesus actually purchased an eternal kingdom, and he purchased an eternal people by his perfect blood, right? So he seals the promises of God on the cross. This is the Jesus that we worship this morning, right? This is the Jesus that we are singing songs to, This is the Jesus that we meet uh, for crowded houses over. This is the Jesus that we encourage people and preach about. This is the Jesus. He is our king. He is our king. He's come and he's died for us. He's laid his down life for the the people and he's laid his life down for the kingdom. And right now Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God, right? Everyone originally thought that he had been... um, destroyed everyone thought that he had failed but right now because of his death he is sitting victorious over sin death and demons right so jesus is enthroned now as i speak over all of these things that's our king so what do we what do we do with this this morning Um, how do we kind of apply this practically to our life we're going to end with this um means that no matter where we're at in life, no matter whether we think we're in the valley of the shadow of death, like we talked about last week, um, no matter what we're going through, God is faithful. God is faithful to us, and we can trust his faithfulness. You know, a lot of us have experienced unfaithfulness in our life, right? We've experienced it with our families and our friends, experienced it in our marriages. And sometimes it's kind of hard to conceive of a God um, who is perfectly faithful when we look around us and see all of the unfaithfulness in people around us. 
And frankly, when we truly look at ourselves and see the unfaithfulness in our own hearts, it's hard to imagine a, a God who is perfectly faithful. Um, but what is faithfulness? That's, that's what God is calling us uh, to ask this morning. What is it? Faithfulness is, is someone who makes a word uh, or a promise and they keep it fully. No exceptions, no ifs, ands, or buts. Perfectly faithful to keeping a promise. And when we look to Jesus, we see the faithfulness of God. Jesus is the image of God's faithfulness. Because every single word of every single promise has found um, fulfillment in Jesus, right? Second Corinthians tells us all the promises of God find their yes in him, in Jesus. So this morning, God's not calling us to a, a blind faith or an empty faith. Um, I, I know a lot of uh, people will criticize Christians or accuse them of, of having a, a blind faith that rests on nothing. Um, but that's just not true. God is saying to you this morning, look at my promises. These things actually happened in history. Look at, look at uh, Abraham. Look at Isaac. Look at Jacob. Look at Moses. Look at David. Look at the prophets. Look at my scripture. Look at the history of Israel. And then look at Jesus, right? And see that I have been faithful to every single one of my promises in him. That's what God is calling us to trust this morning. God is calling us to trust in his faithfulness. So for those of you who don't um, follow Jesus this morning, God is saying, hey, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, he will save you. That is his promise to you right now. And if you're not following Jesus, God is saying to you that he will be faithful to sustain you to the end, that he will bring you to the end, that he will glorify you with himself, that you will be caught up in his presence for all eternity, and that he will do it. So I encourage all of us to throw yourself before God's faithfulness. Throw yourselves upon the promises of God and trust that God is going to fulfill those promises. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we just come before you acknowledging that you are faithful. You are the only true one who is faithful. Faithful and true is your name, God. We thank you that you are the God of the covenant and the God of the promises and that not a single word that you have spoken has failed. Lord, we pray that we would be people who would center our lives around your promises, that we would see all of reality and all of our experiences through what you have spoken to us. Lord, and we thank you that um, those, those promises um, have been demonstrated to be true in your son. Lord, those things have happened. Not a single word has fallen, but your son is the image of your faithfulness. And so we just pray that as we praise you and we worship you um, in our lives, Lord, that we would worship you for your goodness to us. Lord, we pray these things in your name.